Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to sign up for all the free stuff um, or become a paid member of the Dispatch community. Um, I sorry if I'm sound a little out of it. It is very early in the morning in Spokane, Washington. I am uh, parked in the parking lot of Manitou Park in 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 Spokane, which is a lovely park. My daughter went running here last night, um, and I'm a little rusty on this stuff. I'm also doing this as a solo podcast because I am driving several thousand miles home, and uh, between the time zones. And the other things I had to do and someone dropping out, uh, we didn't have a guest today. And rather than coordinate having a conversation with Nick, I just thought this was the best fallback. So I am hiding nothing from you, dear listeners. Uh, Oh, I should say today's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Conceived in Liberty speaker series at the Bradley Foundation and by Hydrant. More about both of those in a little bit. So, um, I know I did my, what, what happened to me on my, um, summer vacation, uh, spiel last week and no need to go back through all of that. Um, I did have a kind of a harrowing experience that I, I'm, I'm laboring on whether or not I should talk about, um, maybe I'll return to that later in the week or something. Um, it was kind of a, an opening thing. Don't mean to be cryptic. I just don't want to get weird and emotional and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, last night was, I guess, day two of the Republican National Convention. I watched a chunk of it, uh, not all of it, because I had to feed my kid and, um, and myself, uh, and, uh, went to a ramen place in downtown Spokane, which is, uh, not a sentence I say very often. Um, so, you know, from tuning in and out of it and following on the, the, coverage of all of it uh you know i have punditry but i'm going to do the dispatch podcast in about an hour or two or whatever time that is um and so i'll save most of that kind of punditry for that i will say i think these things are pretty well made i think they're doing about as good as job as i thought they could um maybe even a little better of uh making trump seem like a reasonable within the the within normal parameters president and person uh, which as listeners probably know, I think is a pretty heavy lift. Um, I do think that, um, 
Uh, Melania did pretty well. Uh, you know, it's unfair, but it's a fact that having a thick sort of East, East-ish European accent, I guess Southeast European accent, uh, hurts you. Um, when speaking to an American audience, it's just a little tougher to follow her. She was also a bit stiff. It clearly doesn't come naturally to do this kind of stuff. Um, but she was good. And the content of her speech was good. She actually was empathetic and she actually talked to the reality of the moment that we're in better than anybody else I have heard, including people, you know, I'm fans of. Um, and I thought, uh, Tim Scott's speech was very, very good. Uh, but both he and Nikki Haley, and I thought her speech was fine. I, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted about Haley for reasons I've stated a zillion times. Um, but I thought it was fine. Uh, but the, those also seemed like uh, auditions for 2024. Uh, doesn't mean they're bad and doesn't mean that's illegitimate or anything like that, but they felt like just normal political speeches. I thought uh, that Don Jr. Um, was, <laughs> um, uh, he looked like he uh, had white powder on his nose coming out of um, some sort of high-end bathroom stall at the hottest club in Long Island City. Um, his eyes were so wrecked, which I just thought was really weird. And um, uh, he just seemed off kilter to me, so much so that I found it kind of hard to follow him. I also, you know, full disclosure, I don't take him seriously. Um, I think he's not a serious person. I, If I'm in a conversation with someone and they tell me that they're thinking about uh, Don Jr. in 2024, um, I'll, I'll be polite, but I, I'm done taking them seriously. Um, but, uh, you know, he didn't do any damage. I missed Eric Trump last night. I hear he did pretty well. Um, but I got to say, I find the whole spectacle kind of grotesque that I don't know what the final count is, but of primetime major speakers, it feels like 50% of them are members of the would-be royal family. And I suppose that if you have a lot of admiration for the Trump family and don't hear the stories that you hear in Washington about how they're all stabbing each other in the back and how Don doesn't like most of his kids and all of that kind of stuff. And that if you actually believe all of the BS that they put out about, you know, their, their, you know, incredible talent and all of these kinds of things, maybe you think that's fine. Um, but even if you love the Trump family, you know, the party is supposed to be, the Republican party is about to be, supposed to be more than a single family. And to simultaneously say, yeah, we're not going to do a platform and, um, roll out a convention that is, you know, it's not authoritarian in, in substance so much, but is kind of, you know, cult of personality, Ceausescu-esque in the, the overall assumptions, I just think is grotesque, particularly when you add to it, I don't even forget Ceausescu, it's kind of futile. Um, you know, he, he uses the pardon power live on TV for um, political ends. Um, they do an immigration swearing in ceremony for political ends. They do it on White House property. Pompeo does his speech from Israel. And yeah, look, no one's going to jail over any of this kind of stuff. And I don't give a rat's ass about how much of a violation <laughs> of the Hatch Act it is. 
I just find it unseemly and embarrassing. Um, and I'm embarrassed by people who think it's awesome. Um, and I'm embarrassed by, you know, by the whole, I mean, as I wrote last week, you know, I'm just embarrassed by American politics these days. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, I, I will not, I will confess to a certain degree of schadenfreude about Jerry Falwell Jr., given uh, the givens and all of that. And, um, you know, look, I hope he gets his life together and, and, you know, there's room for redemption and there's room for monetizing redemption in some circles as well. Um, but having been called a cuck, for four years, uh, because, uh, I don't necessarily get intoxicated by Donald Trump's Musk, uh, the way some people do to then have this guy at least be accused of being an actual literal cuckold. Um, it's just so on the nose. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just blown away by it. And to come on the heels of the postal services takedown of Steve Bannon, um, are you really, it's very difficult to rule out even the most outlandish scenarios to come. Um, anyway, so I, I don't like these things. I don't like the spectacle of them. I don't like, you know, it's a little unfair for me because I didn't watch the democratic one, which I understand was a bit more of a downer. Um, I think that these, uh, virtual, you know, conventions, these infomercial conventions for reasons I discussed last week are more consistent with the evolution of conventions than they are uh, a sharp break from it. Um, yeah, I understand they don't have big crowds and audiences and that kind of thing in the room. Um, but for the last 15, 20 years, those audiences were increasingly like the audiences for the sham. Wow. They were simply props used for, you know, designating when to applaud or when to recognize a soundbite, or, um, you know, in some cases, <laughs> when to edit the video. And uh, uh, I, I, they feel very pseudo-eventy to me, and this is just sort of puts, a, a, puts it in fine relief. Uh, my suspicion is, is that the conventions will... We'll go back to having big stadiums full of people again, um, but will... But more of this model will have a half-life that I think people right now appreciate, or not, not even a half-life, will we'll endure um, after this. You know, it's, 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 for people who don't watch or binge full conventions, it's important to remember that, that they were, you know, there were large swaths of pre-produced video in those things already. Uh, this just made them more pronounced. Um, one last thing on the convention. I do think it was funny, at least on the first night, you know, you watch, I watched Hannity and since I was on West coast time, the, um, the, his show really wasn't in part of the primetime thing, but he was cutting in and out of like sort of the pre primetime coverage. And it was, it was very meta because you had this thing where you're cutting from um, sort of classic Fox. There, there are people speaking who are Fox News, classic Fox News guests, and then you cut to Hannity asking other Fox News guests to respond to what the Fox News guest was saying on TV. Um, I'm sure something like that was going on with the sort of MSNBC crowd during the Democratic thing, though. Again, I missed it. Uh, but it was very, you know, I felt like 
it's a tragedy Marshall McLuhan isn't around um, to follow all of this stuff. Anyway, um, oh, and there's the Kim Guilfoyle thing, which I thought, uh, well, I thought was a perfect example of why I'm embarrassed by all this crap. Um, so there are two things, I guess, is, I mean, I have no real agenda here, but the two things that come to my mind that I want to talk about. The first is the, uh, this argument, I got into a thing with Ariel Davidson. I got no problem with her. She's nice. As far as I can tell, I don't know her personally, but, uh, I just, she just happened to be catch my eye tweeting about how it's obvious that, um, a vote for Biden is a vote for more Antifa, uh, street Marxist goons and nihilists, uh, harassing people and destroying property or something along those lines. I mean, it's, it's a common, I see a hundred, 200 times a day in various places that voting for Biden is voting for riots. It's voting for looters. It's voting for the worst of BLM and Antifa and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm open to that argument. I am. I mean, it's possible. It's true. Uh, um, and I don't mean that like everybody who, I don't think it's true that everybody who votes for Biden is in favor of all of those things. And I, I think only really dumb, knuckle-dragging, idiot right-wingers actually believe that, um, with the exception of people who just are wrong and haven't thought through it at all. But if you actually believe that, that every single person of some, I don't know, 50, 55, 60 million people, I don't know what the electorate's going to be, person who votes for Biden is in favor of the worst thing that some looters or, or, or Antifa types do and that they're consciously voting for more of that stuff, then you are so deep into the bunker of polarization, uh, that you need to sit out a few plays. You know, there are going to be people who are voting for Biden who are, you know, conservative Democrats, old people, uh, you know, Republicans, you know, there are going to be a bunch of people who are from the Republican side of the aisle. You know, if you're like, if you're one of these strange creatures who I do not know personally, who thinks that because John Kasich voted, at the, uh, you know, spoke at the Democratic convention, that you're now going to vote for Biden. If you, if he, if you were one of the Kasich persuadables, uh, you know, first of all, kudos for being a unicorn, but, um, it does not mean that Kasich persuaded you to vote for, uh, burning down stores and, uh, and throwing Molotov cocktails in police guards. So anyway, I don't think serious people are making that argument. I think serious people are making the argument that Biden's a pawn of the left, that Biden's too weak, that Biden doesn't have the backbone to stand up to this stuff, and that therefore we'll get more of it. Um, there are some people, you know, if you read all the replies I had on Twitter yesterday, which I haven't, I just saw some of them because life's too short and I'm too busy, but um, there are some people who claim that because he hasn't, denounced every single bad act that therefore he endorses every single bad act. Um, this is a very strange argument for full throated Trumpers to make, um, given how much they push back on that when the same logic is used about Trump. Uh, but regardless, uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't believe that Biden, never mind all Biden voters are in favor of these riots and the looting. Biden has said he's against defunding the police. Um, 
my guess is we're going to see one of the reasons why Kamala Harris got picked is because she's going to lean back into her experience as a prosecutor. Um, but anyway, I'm open to the, you know, I'm open as a matter of analysis and, 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 you know, uh, uh, you know, logic and evidence to the idea that, you know, picking Biden will make these problems in America worse. I just, every time I, my problem is, is it's such a Martin Bailey. Every single time I ask people very dispassionately, as I did with Ariel, you know, uh, what's the evidence for this? What is the argument? I get, you know, you know, hundreds of, oh, you just don't get it. Or, or just one piece of conjecture and of, you know, piled on top of conjecture. Or I get, as I got with Ariel, a retreat, sort of the Mountain Bailey retreat back into, well, it's just my opinion. Well, this is my problem. It's like, if you go around saying it's an objective fat, fact and everybody knows it, and you're going around like James Wood saying, vote like your life depends on it, as if, if Biden's elected, Slim Pickens is going to do a number seven like he did in Blazing Saddles, riding into town, whooping in a whomping, you know, uh, 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 stealing the women and raping the cattle and all that. If you actually believe that that's true and you assert it as fact, not as opinion, not as like, this is my best guess, but you just sort of buy into the group thing. And then I ask you for actual evidence or, or an argument or even a freaking historical analogy that bolsters your case and you fall back to, well, that's just my gut feeling. That's my instinct. Um, to me, it's just a sign of the mass group thing that is going on on the right these days where um, people have just convinced themselves that it's true. And then they reverse engineer, you know, and cherry pick various impressionistic facts to fit the conclusion that they've already drawn. And it's just, a, it's going to look very weird to historians, I think, because uh, this stuff is happening under Donald Trump. And imagine if I had said in um, 2015, early 2016 or whatever, a vote for Hillary Clinton, I'm sorry, a vote for Donald Trump is a vote for uh, mass riots in the streets uh, left-wing looters and anarchists taking over cities, people would have laughed me out of the room. But I would have been 100% right. 100% right. Because that is exactly what has happened. And I'm very much part of the, I'm on the sort of team Ross Douthat about all this kind of stuff. I think that these riots and unrest are a result of the Trump presidency more than they are a um, something that Trump is going to prevent and one of the reasons why I'm very comfortable saying that is that that is what has happened. That is an objective fact. Trump was elected. These things happened on his watch. Now, that doesn't mean he wanted them, right? Um, although clearly he enjoys some of these things because they're in their political interest. I should say he didn't do anything consciously to ignite these things. Um, he's not ideologically in favor of these things any more than I think Frankly, Joe Biden is ideologically in favor of these things, but he, um, but it's just a simple fact that there's vastly more evidence that a vote for Donald Trump, at least in 2016 would result in this stuff than a vote for Joe Biden in 2020 would result in this stuff because 
the stuff that has happened since 2016 has actually happened in our portion of the space-time continuum. And everything that people are conjecturing about Biden has not, in fact, happened yet. And that doesn't mean that a vote for Biden makes it all go away. It could get worse. I've been arguing for a very long time that Biden is more, you know, Biden could very well be um, the, you know, an LBJ president very quickly and get eaten alive by the left. Um, Or he might not. I I mean, I don't know. And nobody else does. Um, But I'm not, you know, but I'm not out there saying with absolute metaphysical certainty that a vote for Biden is a vote for more of this junk. Um, but there is this weird, and I'm, I'm not voting for Joe Biden. You know, I, I think Joe Biden has got all sorts of problems, but there is this funny disconnect that comes out constantly, this sort of cognitive dissonance that comes out in the, um, in the convention so far that simultaneously Joe Biden is this racist who put all these black people in jail and He's a pawn of the left who's in favor of BLM and race riots and looting and Antifa and all these kinds of things. These two things are difficult to square. They're, all, they're as difficult to square as sleepy Joe Biden and radical Joe Biden. And when you start citing mutually contradictory evidence to bolster your position, um, it may be a sign that you are just looking for the permission structure to take a position rather than thinking things through. Um, But you know who thinks things through? Alan Gelzo. And that's why I want to talk to you about the latest episode of the Bradley Foundation's speaker series. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley speaker series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit Bradley FDN, that's like the abbreviation for foundation, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring acclaimed historian, Dr. Alan Gelzo. Dr. Gelzo is a senior research scholar in the Humanities Council and director of initiatives on politics and statesmanship in the James Madison program at Princeton University, a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a 2018 Bradley Prize winner. He also just knows more about Abraham Lincoln than I think anybody else alive. And he is a brilliant writer on all things about the the true nature of the American uh, political experiment, about what Lincoln's experiment was, what Lincoln's contribution was. I'm a huge fan of Alan Gelzo. In this episode, Gelzo eloquently argues that while the COVID-19 pandemic is indeed extraordinary, we can still apply valuable lessons from history in our efforts to effectively deal with it. A leading scholar in Abraham Lincoln and the Civil Civil War, Gelzo also shares his perspectives on American exceptionalism, leadership during this crisis, and the importance of getting history right. For Americans, he states, all that we have is our history. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation and their Conceived in Liberty speaker series for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so um, the other thing I kind of want to talk about, I had an interesting conversation um, 
with my daughter yesterday. Um, I've had a lot of interesting conversations because I've been with my daughter for a while. Um, so, you know, daddy, daughter, my wife's back at home taking care of the, um, quadrupeds. And, um, she, I was listening to the news or trying to, and she said, can I read you something? And I was like, sure. And it's this thing that a, a bunch of her friends sent her on Instagram. I, I don't know how, I won't read you the whole thing. Um, but it's a whole infographic, uh, interactive thing titled, did Jeff Bezos earn his money? And he says, let's say I'm an employer and you come to me looking for a job. I'm going to hire you and we agree how much you'll be paid. $10 an hour. Through your labor, you are producing a certain amount of value every hour for the company. If the value that you are producing is less than $10 an hour, I'm paying you. I'm losing money and I'm going to fire you. You must be producing more in value for me than I'm going to pay you in wages. So far, basically so good. Then he goes on. This means that part of every day you work for me. Sorry. This means that part of every day you work for me, you're paying me for me to boss you around. This is where we go off the rails. The commodities I'm selling wouldn't exist if not for your labor. I didn't create that value. You did. The amount of value you create through your labor that isn't returned to you as wages goes into my pocket as profit. Goes on. A U.S. Amazon worker earns $15 an hour. Jeff Bezos makes $2,849 every second. I don't know if that's true, but let's say it is. Bezos is not working six, 638,760 times harder than one of his workers. He is stealing thousands of hours of unpaid work from his laborers every single day. Wage labor, a system where an employer rents someone's labor and returns only part of the value they produce back to them, is the bedrock of our economic system. It cannot survive without it, and it is the reason people like Jeff Bezos have disgusting levels of wealth. Unless you own the means of production in society, the machines, the tools, the land, you will spend your life working to make someone else filthy rich while, whilst they lounge in the Cayman Islands. Welcome to, to capitalism. And it goes on. Now, this is clearly from some Brit, because there's labor spelt with an O-U-R, and they use the word whilst, which, you know, in large parts of America, that's them's fighting words. Um, but anyway, you see this stuff all over the place. And um, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about this for just a second, because this is the Marxist notion. And I'm not using Marxist the way everybody's sort of throwing around Marxist at everything they don't like these days. Uh, this is like textbook Marxist uh, labor theory of value. And um, labor theory of value is this idea that's deeply cemented into uh, Mark, you know, into everything about Marxist theory. It's this, the, the basic idea is basically as this guy states it, is that um, all value in a product is from the labor. Anything, if a product is sold at a profit above the, the, the value of the labor that went into it, plus the commodity itself, I guess, and that's actually kind of fuzzy, I'll return to that, uh, then it's exploitation, right? Then you are vampire-like siphoning off uh, the surplus value of a product. And uh, there's actually, I think in pop culture, probably the best single uh, 
adaptation of the labor theory of value comes from the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, where he was talking about why he became, why this high priest decided to become a religious sort of zealot, because he had made shoes as a living. He was a very successful cobbler. And basically he was, as he put it, selling his time. My father was a cobbler. He died when I was young and I took over his shop. He was a simple man and he made simple shoes, but I found that the more work I put into my shoes, the more people wanted them. You know, fine leather, ornamentation, detailing, and time. Time, most of all. Dozens of hours spent on a single pair. Quality takes time. <laughs> yes. I imagine you've worn a year of someone's life on your back. The highborn like to cover their feet with my time, and they paid well for the privilege. I had to be very, you know, I have to be very careful when I talk about this stuff with my daughter for her capacity to get bored with me getting too nerdy about this stuff is, is, uh, very, uh, high. You know, she, she just wants answers to questions about politics and stuff. She doesn't want all the backstory. She doesn't, she's not a remnant listener, um, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So anyway, um, uh, but this is something that I think is extremely important. And it's something that if you, if you get this, if you don't understand why this is so astoundingly wrong, you'll never understand why capitalism is so astoundingly right. Um, so let's just sort of start from the beginning. This is sort of, sort of how I kind of explained it to my daughter. Um, let's say I, and well, so let's say, well, let me put it this way. First of all, the description of what Jeff Bezos does as, um, as, is wrong here in this thing. He actually doesn't produce the things as this, the author of this Instagram thing says, he doesn't produce the commodities that, um, uh, are being sold by Amazon, nor do the workers at Amazon, the commodity, if we can call it that, that the workers at Amazon provide is timely delivery. Yeah, I mean, okay, there are some, a handful of products that Amazon made, Amazon Basics or whatever, but Amazon didn't become a giant company through Amazon Basics. It became, it became a giant company by figuring out the logistics of delivering stuff. That's what Amazon does. It's a, it's a place that you can buy things from other producers. Amazon's the middleman, and it expedites it coming to your house, saving you time. So put that aside for a second. But let's say they're right. Let's say that Amazon, let, let's get move away from what the actual model of Amazon is and just get to the basics of capitalism. Let's say you invent, you have a, uh, you know, my daughter is somewhat a little interested in like baking and sometimes talks about opening a bakery. So it's like, let's say you come up with an idea for a great bakery um, that no one else is doing. And she's got these ideas about hot chocolate and yada, yada, yada. Let's say she comes out with this new idea for with new recipes and new ways of, of baking stuff. And she goes out and she has to borrow money from the bank or from her father, but probably from the bank to, you know, uh, start the business. She has to, you know, maybe do it from the garage for a while. She has to stay and live at home rather than go find an apartment. She has to, eventually she gets a storefront. She has to sign a lease. Um, she has to, um, um, you know, 
start hiring people and be on the hook to pay them whether or not she's making a profit. Uh, she has to promise to return the money uh, that she borrowed with interest, whether or not she ends up turning a profit. Uh, she also has to take the risk of being embarrassed and humiliated and maybe taking a big career hit if this thing fails. Uh, so she's taking on an enormous, you know, you're, the entrepreneur is taking on an enormous amount of risk, social risk, financial risk, um, making an investment of time when no one else will. If this thing goes belly up, the people you hire to be cashiers and bakers, they just go on to another job. Um, you have to deal with the mess and the consequences of it. And the reason I bring it up this way is that according to labor theory of value, um, none of that stuff counts. The investor, the creator, the, the business person, um, it's just they start from the assumption that the factory already exists, that the idea for the product already exists, that marketing and advertising are not important considerations for how you actually sell a product, um, that all of the intellectual capital in terms of designing the, uh, you know, the, the way the thing is manufactured, the way the thing is shipped, the way the thing is sold, the way the thing is marketed, none of that stuff matters. It's just the person on the, according to the labor theory of value, it's just the, the, the schlep on the assembly line putting the widgets together or the, the baker, you know, in the, in the kitchen putting the dough and the, the flour in the bowl. That is where all of the value comes from. And the first and most important problem with that um, assertion is it's just frickin' not true. It's just factually untrue. And if you build an entire economic theory about how to organize society around a fundamentally wrong description about how economics works, it's very difficult to get off the drawing board. And um, and so, but let's say, you know, so then my daughter says, well, look, let's say that, uh, she goes, well, let's say you started the factory and, or started the bakery and it was all up and running and it was going great. And then you give it to me or you, I inherit it from you. Um, then I have gotten something for nothing. And, uh, you know, she has got a point there. And this is one of the places where it's sort of, in criticisms of the intergenerational wealth and transfer stuff have a little bite. I'm much less sympathetic to it than some people are, but it's not on its face dumb to talk about, you know, how some people just are born on third base kind of thing. Fair enough. The question then becomes, what kind of society do you want to live in? If you take away the incentive, if you take away the ability for people to build something big and important and um, that they can then leave to their children. If you say, well, you know, you can get a, you can get a company as big as you want, but when you die, then, you know, you, it go, the, the means of production go to the state because they belong to everybody. And your kid is no more deserving uh, as any other kid to inherit that wealth and that capital. Um, as a matter of justice or even social justice, maybe there's some truth there. Maybe there's a sort of Rawlsian, you know, veil of ignorance argument that says that my kid is no more entitled to my share of the dispatch than anybody else. Um, okay. But 
if we if we actually make that into law, if we actually make that the way we organize our economics and our politics and our society, then the idea that anyone is well, some people will, but the idea that people are going to have the right incentive to build lasting things, to uh, deny themselves all sorts of pleasures in the moment so that they can build something they're proud of to pass on to another generation, to pass on to their progeny, to leave a legacy behind. You take away that incentive, and my assertion, you know, I mean, I, I can't do the math for you right here. Uh, I haven't had that much coffee. Um, but my assertion is, is that the society will be poorer for it. If you want to set up a society where no one is allowed to leave their thing, leave a dynasty or a legacy to their children, uh, the idea that you're going to have as much risk-taking, that you're going to have as much commitment, not just to big businesses or to corporations, but to all sorts of civic institutions or local institutions that matter, um, is just insane. You know, I mean, if you, if you think that the local grocery store as a, as an institution in a small town is important, um, take away the ability of someone like my, you know, my late father-in-law to pass the business on, uh, to his kids and they're just going to make very different decisions and uh, setting up, you know, this, this idea that somehow it's just invalid or unfair to have a society like that. It, I don't agree, but it may be true or maybe partially true, which I say, I think is the biggest concession that I'm willing to make. But the thing is, is that even if it's partially true, the alternatives to it are worse. And this idea that somehow the incentive structure, you know, this is one of the things that really comes through in, you know, I write about in, in, in Suicide of the West that comes through in, in Francis Fukuyama's two volume, uh, you know, book on the, basically on the, 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 where the state comes from. I can't remember. I'm blanking on the title of the book, but which is weird because I read it or read them. Um, but there has never been a society anywhere in the world at any time in the world where people didn't give some preference to their kids, to their family over strangers, and uh, that people didn't ha show favoritism towards people they were uh, you know, friends with or aligned with or loyal to through familial ties over strangers. That's just simply the way it is. And the important point here is that's the way it is in socialist countries too. Uh, this notion that there's this alternative way of organizing society where that desire, that instinct, that impulse is taken out of people is belied by every single experiment with those kinds of statist systems. Um, the children of party apparatchiks got plum jobs. The children of party bosses got plum jobs, inherited certain things. You know, one of my favorite examples I talk about all the time is that in parts of Mexico, uh, the teachers unions created and the state created a system where teaching jobs were heritable so that you could just leave your job to your kid. Uh, that is a very common thing. You know, you know, look, I've changed my mind somewhat about unions, but this idea that um, uh, unions didn't show favoritism to the kids of union members is belied by 150 years of the history of unions in America. Just go to any, you know, firehouse, any police department, um, and you'll find examples of that kind of nepotism that goes on there. You'll definitely find it in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, and in China. All the kids of party members are, they're called the little princelings who've gotten rich. So 
Um, it's fine to criticize this aspect of liberal democratic capitalism, but if you only criticize it about liberal democratic capitalism, you create the impression that this isn't a problem of human nature rather than um, a problem that is unique to capitalism. And the beauty of capitalism is that it actually wears down intergenerational wealth and power better than all the other systems because of the creative destruction of capitalism. If you go back and you look at the families of the richest people in the world in the early part of the 20th century, going back to the so-called robber barons, how many of them lost all, almost all of their fortunes um, within a couple of generations, it's really kind of amazing. The Vanderbilts were a spent force in terms of their wealth by the 1960s, and then Gloria Vanderbilt became an entrepreneur and made money on her own. Um, that, you know, and you can talk about the, the, the Blade Runner curse. The same thing happens with corporations where Fortune 500 companies tend to die out in uh, liberal democratic systems precisely because the market wears these things down. It is in countries where the power of inherited wealth is married to the power of the state that you actually get much more unfairness, where the best apartments get left to members of, of the party and to their kids and to their kids and all of the rest. Um, and so, you know, it's fine to decry this stuff, and I'm open to sort of, you know, you know, laws at the margins that deal with some of the worst abuses of these things. But at the end of the day, I want to live in a society where so long as you're still providing goods and services that the market wants, um, you should be able to pass your businesses down in perpetuity to your families. And it's not unfair to do so. And then I think there's just simply the issue of whether or not work itself in a wage system is exploitative, right? This is the essence of the labor theory of value. It goes to this idea that um, working for a wage is somehow... Uh, an exploitation. It's, it's usurious. In Marx, there's all this, it's vampiric, right? There, I wrote this piece about the sort of a whiff, there's a background radiation of anti-Semitism in a lot of Marx's theory because his arguments about usury and finance capital and the Jews um, uh, sort of overlay capitalism itself. And if you read on the Jewish question by Marx, you can see what I'm talking about. Or if you read my piece for commentary on this question, you can see what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, the simple fact is, is that work is not zero sum because the exchange of goods and services in a marketplace is not zero sum. I mean, the example I always use on this podcast and in book talks and whatnot is that in a state of nature, the way if you have a bushel of apples and I want your apples, the way I get your apples is I hit you over the head with a rock and I take your apples. That's zero sum. Not only do you lose your apples, you gain a bonk on the head, but in a free market contractual market-driven economy with the rule of law and all that stuff, if you have a bushel of apples and you want to do something with those apples other than eat them because you've got lots more apples at home, you want to sell them. And if I really like apples and need apples for my bakery or something like that, um, uh, I need apples. I give you money. You give me apples. It's win-win. It's not zero-sum. And the same thing goes with your labor. If you need money <laughs> to go work, uh, you provide something to whether it's Amazon or the local bakery or, or a McDonald's, you provide your labor and in exchange you get money. But you don't just get money. You also get experience um, in terms of whether you want to just call it earned success or just simply, you know, 
resume building experience. Uh, you know, I had a friend who was a um, former restaurant manager. Actually, he ran cinema draft houses. And I, when I lived in Prague, um, he was a friend of mine. And he would tell me how, so long as you had a good recommendation and worked for McDonald's for a year, he would hire you. Because, and first of all, the good recommendation part is kind of uh, redundant because if you worked at McDonald's for a year, um, you're recommendable because otherwise you wouldn't have held on to your job. And his point was that McDonald's as an institution made a huge contribution in our society precisely because they have worked on for years how to train young people with no business experience whatsoever in their first jobs disproportionately poor these days, probably disproportionately minority, although I don't know that, that's just sort of the cliche, but gives people their first job and gets gives them those basic skills about uh, customer service, punctuality, uh, cleanliness, you know, uh, including hygiene, making change, uh, working with others, taking direction, all of these kinds of things, which are hugely valuable if you want to move up the ladder of, of work in the society, particularly if you don't have access to higher education and all the rest. This is a boon that McDonald's does in terms of job training. And, um, you know, it, as I often point out, you know, in feudal societies, if you wanted your kid to have something close to a good wage earning life, uh, you would bribe essentially a blacksmith or a mason or a sculptor or a tanner or whatever it is you basically pay them to take your kid in as an, uh, as an apprentice and in exchange for the free labor, not paid labor, for essentially the indentured servitude of a finite period of time, the kid would then learn a trade that was marketable. And this was a huge favor to, to poor families to give these kids some training, some marketable skill set. And, uh, and so this idea that somehow it's purely exploitation if somehow the owner of a business makes one penny above the value of the person's labor is just insane to me. And it is a really dangerous and pernicious way to talk about capitalism, but it's the way capitalism is talked about in vast swaths of society. And so to just get back to Jeff Bezos for a second, you know, does Jeff Bezos have too much money? Uh, you know, compared to what? In all, what is the alternative? What is the trade-off, right? That is the sort of the sort of fundamental economics, Henry Hazlitt, Tom Sold point is that, okay, maybe he has too much money. I don't really know what that means. Um, maybe it's bad in terms of social peace and the envy that, it, that such wealth arouses. Um, but what kind of incentive structure are you setting up when you say the state can set a finite limit on how much money he can make? Um, what kind of uh, uh, sort of industrial policy or economic policy are you setting up where you think that some bureaucrats for not necessarily academic mathematical reasons or economics reasons, but for political reasons, simply decide that some people have too much money? Um, the, 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 the knock-on consequences of engaging in that kind of politics just strike me as worse than the price of having allegedly too many rich people. And, uh, like I know the trickle down stuff is overdone and it was, it's in, in some ways it was a pejorative because it was the phrase that, you know, Reagan's critics used more than Reagan himself, which is the history of a lot of these things. Um, but the amount of 
jobs and services that billionaires create in the society is not inconsequential. And I would rather live in a society with a lot more billionaires than a lot fewer. Um, I'd also point out, um, again, I should go back to this one other point that I forgot to mention. Just as I was saying this thing about uh, intergenerational transfers of power and influence that you get um, uh, that that are common everywhere around the world, not just in capitalist societies, but in all societies, um, this idea that I just can't remember if I said this before, um, that workers in socialist societies aren't being exploited at least as much as workers in um, Western societies is kind of insane when you think about it. You know, this idea that somehow magically the, the psychic satisfaction that comes or ideological satisfaction that comes with being told that you own 0.00001% of the means of production. And so therefore you're working for yourself when you're working for 14 hours a day in some Soviet widget factory is, is ludicrous. Um, if you go read, um, why nations fail the, the section on how the Soviet economy worked, uh, ostensibly all those workers owned the means of production and, uh, you had people being literally sent to the gulag for taking too many 15 minute breaks. And, uh, the idea that somehow that was a preferable way of, of dealing with labor is just something that dumb and ignorant people say. Um, and what you really want, and this is the last point that I was making with my daughter was, you know, she was asking about what's the difference between a normal business and a sweatshop. And I was just saying it, it, the basic difference is whether or not, um, the workers have any market power to, uh, bid up higher wages to get, uh, workplace protections and all of these kinds of things, which is why in, in, in America, basically the only real sweatshops that are left and they do exist are places where the employer has um, leverage over them in terms of their immigration status or something like that. Um, and I guess there are probably a few others where just people are so poor in a specific area and there are no other job options that they don't have any serious market power to bid up their wages. But, you know, as I tried to explain to my daughter, you know, there are programmers at Google who make I, I assume $150,000, $250,000 a year. There are probably a lot of them. And they get all of these perks in terms of healthcare, in terms of being able to say and do stupid political things, um, in terms of free food, free dry cleaning, daycare, all of these things. And uh, the idea that that's indistinguishable from a sweatshop is kind of nuts. The idea that that's exploitation is kind of nuts, particularly when any one of those Google programmers, if they wanted to, could quit tomorrow. They'd probably leave some stock options on the table and go work for Facebook or somebody else in Silicon Valley. Um, and anyway, so that's, that's sort of where I'm coming from, um, on this. And I, 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 it was, uh, just sort of really kind of fun and weird to have my daughter asking me de novo about the Marxist labor theory of value. Um, if I sound rambling and weird, it's probably because, um, uh, it's been a harrowing <laughs> few days and, um, I also have a huge drive ahead of me and it's probably also because I'm dehydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? 
We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, it was interesting when we were on the um, Snake River in Idaho, they just kept pressing into us the importance of staying hydrated. Um, um, the head guide was saying how if you come to her with any medical ailment, dizziness, sick stomach, diarrhea, no diarrhea, constipation, um, if some strange third appendage comes out of your forehead, whatever it is, she was like, the first thing we're all going to say to you is, have you been getting enough um, water? Have you been hydrating? And um, we don't understand, particularly those of us who drink a lot of coffee, which can kind of be dehydrating itself, never mind um, some of the, the other brown liquids other than coffee, um, staying hydrated is hugely, hugely important. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just about a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at the checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO, for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code D-I-N-G-O. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, okay. So, uh, as I said, I am in Spokane. I haven't figured out what my next stop on this thing is. I appreciate everybody sending us, sending me suggestions of places to stop and invitations to have a drink and all of that, but I'm kind of desperate to get home. Um, I've been on the road for a very long time. And so, so long as I can do it safely, my impetus is, is not to take a lot of, um, detours though I really want to see if I can figure out if I can go to Rubes in Montour, Iowa, which is the steakhouse I haven't been to in almost 20 years, but I'm told it's still going strong, and um, I think my daughter would love it. And um, I will say, you know, it's interesting, just sort of as a travel log, um, I've been, you know, as, as readers know, or as listeners know, I've been driving around the country a lot this summer, we did it in the early part of pandemic. I was down in Florida and then we did a sort of shorter road trip to Tennessee. And I came out here to Jackson and we drove to Idaho and I've been in Alaska twice. And uh, now I'm in Washington state about to head into Montana. And I will say it's interesting so far, the vast majority of, of yard signs have been Trump signs, which makes some sense in terms of where in the country I've been driving around. Um, I've seen very, very few Biden signs, but interestingly, I've also seen very, very, very few Trump signs. I mean, like normally, even in 2016, you would have seen 10 or 20 times the number of yard signs on both sides. And um, instead, I'll see maybe six, seven Trump signs a day. Um, and no Biden signs or one Biden sign and that kind of thing. And it has me wondering whether or not the, because of the pandemic or something, neither campaign 
is doing yard signs because the distribution is a problem with the pandemic, or if the literature now says that yard signs don't matter. I don't think they ever really mattered, but they were, were a good way to show intensity. Um, I do know, actually, I think it's kind of funny. You know, I get an enormous number of uh, Trump fundraising emails because of, in part because I have these old email addresses that are still on so many Republican right-wing conservative lists. And so, uh, you know, they, they come in from different, you know, different addresses. I don't get too many to my dispatch address. Um, but, uh, and I want to be very clear, all of these fundraising emails in both parties have always been remarkably stupid. And I always despair for the, the intelligence of the Republic. Um, when I read them, whether it was under Obama, you know, where they're written from Barack Obama, Hey buddy, you know, I saw that you weren't on the list, you know, so all that kind of stuff. So stipulated, this is not signaling out Trump in that regard, even though I think some of the emails I get from the Trump campaign are hilariously lame and weird and do not bespeak a campaign that supposedly has this digital death star. But, uh, what I do find that's interesting is how much of the Trump emails are about selling things, selling Mac, special MAGA hats, super MAGA hats, rare MAGA hats, signed pictures. Uh, and one of the things which made me think of this was that, um, the only thing I've seen about yard signs was that they were essentially selling yard signs to voters, um, for, I don't know, 40 bucks for two or something like that. You know, um, I mean, they say, look, make a contribution, get your free yard sign, but basically they're selling the yard sign. And, um, I don't know enough about campaigns, but that's just strikes me as weird because it used to be the campaigns were desperate to give those things away. And, um, and it, it seems like something has qualitatively changed and it does seem like the Trump stuff, um, is selling stuff more than it is, um, uh, as, than, than, than normal. Um, take that for what you will. Uh, Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about the Jerry Falwell Jr. stuff, which I will admit I am trying to restrain my schadenfreude in the spirit of charity and whatnot. And um, I do want to say, uh, lastly, you know, I apologize for the sporadic nature of the podcasting, of the G-File. Uh, hopefully by the end, by, by the beginning of next week, everything goes back to normal and it'll be like clockwork. But uh, there have been some surprises on this trip. and. Um, this was also just a necessary thing for me to do psychologically. Uh, things are going to get so much dumber and so much uglier in the weeks ahead um, that I kind of needed to do this. And even though it's made me more disgusted with politics rather than re renewed me for it, it was still an important thing for me to do. So I appreciate your patience with, with all of that. And um, uh, that's about it. So I will see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.